Good evening. How you guys doing out there? Okay. All right. Well, welcome to the Apple Store Upper West Side uh, for our Meet the Author series. Uh, we have a very special guest tonight, um, John Lithgow, and uh, he'll be talking about his book, Drama, an Actor's Education. So without further ado, please help me welcome John Lithgow. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm, I'm live, am I, and on? Nice to meet you all. Thank you for coming. What a fabulous place to do this. Um, I, I'm going to, this is Donna, of course, who's going to moderate and interview me, but she has suggested that I just say a brief word about the genesis of this book, Drama, an Actor's Education, my memoir, and... Uh, to give you a sense of what the book is. Uh, in fact, the book grew out of a, a kind of inciting incident in the year 2002. My father, at age 86, had a serious operation, some serious medical problems. Uh, he was always a, a genial man with a great sense of humor and a big boisterous laugh, but the, the operation knocked his pins out tired him out, slowed him down, but mainly plunged him into a terrible, deep depression. And I moved in with him and my mom for a month to take care of him, figure out some ongoing care for both of them, but mainly to cheer my father up. He'd lost the will to live, and I could see immediately that without that, he was not going to survive for long. And I tried and tried to cheer him up. I used everything I could all my wiles, nothing worked, but I hit on the idea of reading him bedtime stories. I found this old book that he used to read to us when I and my three siblings were little children called Tellers of Tales. And when they were all tucked in at night, I showed them the book and I told them to pick a story. And my father picked a story by P.G. Woodhouse called Uncle Fred Flits By, which I remembered, I didn't remember, I didn't remember the story, but I remembered that he used to read it to us, and we used to love it because it was so funny. I read it to my father, and it made my father laugh. And it felt like that was the moment when he came back to life. From that moment, I extrapolated my own kind of thoughts and almost my philosophy of what it is that I do. I'm a storyteller, I'm an entertainer, I'm an actor. And it's it, it sort, of, it sort of suddenly like a jolt from the blue. It, it, everything came together. It crystallized what it is that I do, the nature of my profession. Out of that came a solo show, which combined P.G. Woodhouse's story and the story I've just told you. I'd never written anything from my own experience to perform, but I did it at Lincoln Center. It was very warmly received. People loved the story, but what they really loved were the stories from my own life. Along came Harper Collins and suggested I write a book. That's what all it took. And three years later, I created this book, and it was uh, uh, a lot of it is about my father, but. It, a lot of it is about acting. It's called an actor's education because it's sort of block by block. 
how I became the actor that I am and my own feelings about, about the profession. It's only about the first half of my life, because in my mind, that's the most interesting. I be, my life is far less interesting as soon as I became famous, or in any case, everybody already knows about that. Uh, everything I just told you is sort of expanded upon in the uh, preface to the book, but uh, at Donna's suggestion, I'm just going to read the last little piece of it, which is a sort of follow-on to what I just told you. This, by the way, is a wonderful photograph of my father reading to all of us. Isn't the iPad a wonderful thing? <laughs> okay. This is just the end of the preface. Acting is nothing more than storytelling. An actor usually performs for a crowd, whether for a hundred people in an off-Broadway theater or for millions of moviegoers all over the globe. Reading to my parents on that autumn evening in Amherst was something else again. It was acting in its simplest, purest, most rarefied form. My father was listening to Uncle Fred flits by as if his life depended on it. And indeed, it did. The story was not just diverting him. It was easing his pain, dissolving his fear, and leading him back from the brink of death. It was rejuvenating his atrophied soul. Lying next to him, my mother could sense that by some mysterious force, her husband was returning to her. Before he went to sleep, Dad thanked me for the story as if I'd given him a treasured gift. But he'd given me a gift, too. It was the gift of a father's love. I was 56 years old and had known him all my life. In all those years, our relationship had changed kaleidoscopically. We had been up and down, happy and sad, close and distant. Our fortunes had risen and fallen, ebbed and flowed, rarely at the same time. But in all those years, I had never felt as close to him, nor ever felt as much love for him as I did that night. He had given me another gift, too, although he never lived to see it bear fruit. The period I spent with my parents was one of the most significant in my life. In that memorable month, that Woodhouse story was the most memorable hour. I had spent my entire adult life acting in plays, movies, and television shows. I had told stories. I'd had a gratifying, fun, and prosperous career. Only infrequently had I paused to plumb the mysteries of my peculiar occupation. That night, however, everything came into focus. Sitting at my parents' bedside and reading them a story, trying to help two old people feel better, came to seem like a distillation of everything my profession is about. In the years to come, my thoughts kept returning to that evening after my father was long gone. Finally, spurred on by the events of that night, I decided to write this book. That's the end of the preface. And as I, as I thought about what is the best way to spend seven or eight minutes telling you about the book, I figured that was the best thing to tell you. And now Donna's going to ask me some questions about it. Well, I'm not sure how many of you know this. Maybe you do since you have a little boy. But John here is a very accomplished and clever and witty children's book writer. 
So I wanted to start by asking how the process for writing this book differs from, for example, Marsupial Sue, because uh, children's books are deceptively difficult to write. They are difficult, but they don't, they're, they only, they're only about 25 pages long. And my children's books are told, you know, stories told in verse. I could recite one, I could start reciting one right now, and I'd be done in about five minutes. So naturally, it doesn't take as long. And it's a matter of making up a story and, and, and setting it in meter and rhyme, which is in a way kind of like solving a difficult Sunday, Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle. Uh, I wrote my children's books by simply writing them as I walked the dog every morning. Writing something in long form like this was completely different and brand new to me. It was very, very intimidating starting off. I felt like I was setting off to swim across an ocean and that I would never get to the other side. Uh, in fact, I didn't really know where I was going. I sort of discovered it along the way. I discovered the spine of of the book, even the theme of the book, an actor's education. Uh, and, it, and it was sporadic because I had to fit it into the business of acting in plays and movies. I never, my, my schedule was very, very changeable. I'm not a writer, so I didn't have a daily writing schedule. Uh, and it was also difficult to know how much of myself I should re reveal, uh, what to select from my life to tell my story what story it was I, w I was going to tell. Obviously very different. And as it's different to entertain adults from entertaining children, it's very different to write for adults. Well, how did you, thanks for touching on one of my questions, how did you select what to reveal, what to leave out, what was too personal, what was too, just how did you edit yourself? Well, as soon as I began to see the, the shape and the spine as being an actor's education. I realized that, you know, I, it, the book is full of anecdote. I, I, I decided to, to almost tell it as a series of short stories. Every chapter is a story, but every chapter has something to add to this, some answer to the question, how did I become the actor that I became? It ends in 1980, which is a kind of watershed life. If my life was a play, that would be the intermission. Uh, it's the year when I went from New York from to, to Los Angeles, when I met my second wife, and when I started acting in, I became a movie actor who does plays instead of a theater actor who sometimes does movies. So once I got that shape and got that theme, that was the criterion. Now, the, this means on stage and off. Some of these are very personal stories, uh, roman difficult romantic entanglements, uh, the experience of working for a director who went mad before my very eyes, uh, the very difficult matter that I share with every other 65-year-old American man. How do you deal with the Vietnam War and the draft? All of these things, not to mention, my drama school days in London, my days as a Harvard student, my crazy upbringing as a member of a theater family, gypsying around the Midwest and being the new kid in school every year on average. All these things 
there's a little moral to every one of these chapters. What did it do to me as a person and as an actor? And so much of the book really is an ode to your father, who was a pioneer in regional theater. Can you tell us about him and how he, the, the number one way he influenced you? Yeah. He is definitely the biggest influence on my life. He, he, Arthur Lithgow was his name. He, uh, he was called the Johnny Appleseed of Shakespeare. He started Shakespeare's in, Shakespeare festivals in Ohio, summer Shakespeare festivals, outdoor festivals, indoor festivals. One of his festivals, the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, is still going strong. He started it in 1962. His festival in, Acre, in Antioch, at Antioch College in Yellow Springs ran from about 1951 to 1958. He produced every single one of Shakespeare's plays, directing several of them and acting in several of them. I acted in several of them as a little boy, playing Mustard Seed in Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, The Prince in the Tower in Richard III and a spear carrier and a messenger. Uh, it was for me and my siblings, it was mother's milk. It was, our, our, uh, it was just what we did. Even though, growing up, I had no intention of being an actor. I actually did not want to be an actor. You wanted to be a painter. I was much more interested in being a painter. But there, too, my parents were very, very encouraging in a very offhand way. Uh, as I say, they never encouraged me or discouraged me to do anything. Uh, they sort of allowed me to make my own choices and find, find my own way. But look at the context they gave me, mainly because of my father's just amazing imagination. Since you did not start out wanting to be an actor, what would, what would you today tell your younger self if you could go back? Or what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Um, what do I wish I knew then? I don't know, looking back, I feel that I, I made all sorts of kind of lucky choices, even though many of them weren't choices. I sort of backed into things. I, I backed into acting, in, in a sense. I became an experienced and good actor without even knowing it. I arrived at Harvard and fell in with the theater gang, and I was like the campus star instantly, because I could do major roles in Shakespeare. and. Uh, I became a children's book writer sort of by accident, just by entertaining my own baby sister, 10 years younger, and my own children when they were little. Uh, everything, and of course, being an actor in itself, raise your hands if you're actors out there. You know perfectly well, you don't really get to choose your fate. Other people choose it for you. People have bright ideas for you, and. They sort of move you along and move you in interesting directions as an actor. So what would I tell my young self? I think I would tell my young self, don't worry, things are working out just fine. <laughs> what do you view as your greatest professional achievement to date? My greatest professional achievement? Uh, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know, I think some of my work on Broadway is a source of tremendous pride and joy. M. Butterfly in the late 80s. Uh, I guess in a very general way, my biggest achievement was getting myself to the point where I can function in so many different media and for so many different audiences. I work, I go from movies to television to theater to entertaining little children to writing a book. Uh, and that, I guess, 
that, if you can say that's an achievement. It's very hard to define my, my favorite thing because it's like naming your favorite child when you have about 50 children. <laughs> well, you're back on Broadway this fall in The Columnist. Do you still get the same thrill when you go on stage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I keep coming back. Uh, this is a, and this is going to be very, very exciting. It, it, the Columnist is a new play by David Auburn about the Alsop brothers, Joseph and Stuart Alsop, major journalists in the 40s, 50s, 60s. But it's, it's about journalism, but it's about far, far more than that. Very intensely personal drama about Joe Alsop, the part I'm playing. And I read it and had exactly the same thrill I read the first time I read M. Butterfly. It's just a great new play. And it's the kind of thing where you just clear the deck. You know, I, I read The Columnist and, about a, and I immediately set about fighting to play the part. And somewhere in there I was offered a, to replace, to join a major TV series. I won't tell you what it is, but it was like two years of work for easily seven figures. I mean, lots and lots of money. I would be on television constantly for the next two years, and there was no comparison. I much preferred the idea of doing the columnist for the Manhattan Theater Club on Broadway. That's awesome. Look at you going from Judd Apatow to the columnist. Not yeah. many people can say that. Exactly. <laughs> Judd, Judd, I did a Judd Apatow film in the middle of the summer. There you go. Wild, wonderful experience. With this book specifically, what was, I know you said earlier that you don't have a process per se because you're, you don't, you know, you don't have like a nine to five office job, yeah. but what is your process like? Do you have an office? Do you write in bed? Do you sit at the kitchen table? Uh, I, 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 the most productive periods of time actually were two, uh, one tour and one location, a tour of my one man show uh, that the, the, the book grew out of Sto uh, Stories by Heart last year at about this time I, I hit 12 different cities all over the country so I spent loads and loads of time in hotel rooms with nothing to do all day in towns like Galveston, Texas and Ty Tyler and Lexington, Kentucky and Pittsfield, Mass I just wrote and wrote and wrote and the other time was on location for uh, Return of the Rise of the Apes or Rise of the Return of the Apes, the or whatever of, that thing what, is called. What was it called? The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Rise right? of the That's Planet it. of the Apes. Uh, I, I guess I should know that. <laughs> uh, that one it was in Vancouver for about a month last year, last July, and I got a huge amount done. And by that time, I could smell the hay in the stable. I, until, it's amazing, about halfway through the book, or even two-thirds of the way, I thought, I'm never going to finish this. As soon it be, as it began to dawn on me, then things started going much, much faster. It was like, you know, spotting land, after, literally, after crossing the ocean. And do you see yourself doing a quote-unquote sequel? Uh, I, I can't imagine it. No? Uh, this From was 1980 so long on? and difficult. But, I mean, we'll see how this one goes. I really do think the, the most interesting story I have is my young years. Uh, and I, I, it was a fantastic experience for me to go back and tr truly meditate on that. I mean, just sit down and really remember, tax my memory, and use Google, you know, to 
to find out the cast of something I was in in 1971. I, I mean, it's, it's been just an amazing trip, a voyage of memory. Very, very exciting. And, and, and quite frankly, I, I would find it hard to get that excited about writing about the third rock from the sun or Dexter or world according to Garfield. Come on, Dexter was awesome. I know. It's exactly what everybody wants to hear about. Everyone wants to hear about it, but I can just tell them, you know, read any one of about a hundred interviews I did for every single one of those projects. You know, I've, I've already done them in a way. I mean, this is not to say that I, I did, I do have the confidence now that I can do this. I wrote a book and uh, people are actually reading it and telling me they were up all night, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't put it down. That encourages you to try it again, for sure. And before we turn this over to you guys, one last question. Do you think actors are overexposed today? In terms of how much press you do and, and just the general coverage, the onslaught of coverage that every project gets? Well, I don't know. Actors never get enough of it, you know. We... Uh, we, we, we want to be seen all the time. It's not really good for us because I think it is important to, re, to reserve a certain anonymity. I always thought it was a very wise thing for me to do, even though I didn't really do it by choice. When Third Rock from the Sun ended, I came back to New York and did like 80% theater for the next four or five years. I really sort of went to ground. I, I got out of the, uh, of the media public view, and yet I kept acting and having a wonderful time and giving myself terrific new challenges, but in the theater, for a minute audience compared to a television audience, and for the New York theater audience, which is challenging and forgiving at the same time, and sophisticated. I worked with the best people for the best audiences and the best critics for four or five years before I started doing films again. And I think it was exactly that, to be a little less exposed and yet to stay creative. Because I agree, I think at this point there's so many actors where you know what they have for breakfast and what, they're, you know, what kind of dog they have, where it's hard to visualize yeah. them in, in actual roles. And we actors are, are stuck with the same voice, the same body, the same look. Uh, inevitably, you get tired of us. I, I mean, think about Think about your favorite actor and what is your favorite performance. I bet you it's the first time you ever saw him or her. Uh, you know, because the next time you see them, they're a little more familiar. And the next time, a little more familiar. And the next time, a little boring. And the next time, they begin to annoy you because they're doing exactly <laughs> the same thing. Well, that's, what can we do? Same voice, same body, you know? Plastic surgery. Yeah and you begin to use up your bag of tricks. <laughs> All right, do you guys have questions? Uh, yeah, I guess this actually touches on what you just said about uh, people getting bored of actors. I feel like I can never get bored of you because you're always doing something different. Uh, your versatility is amazing and you can go from comedy to, to something really dark and really heavy. Uh, mm -hmm. Just can you talk about your approach and how you approach these sort of sure. different well, roles differently? Well, thank you for that very nice compliment. Believe me, you'll get tired of me soon <laughs> if you keep watching. Uh, you know, one thing, it's, it's not a rule for myself because you can never stick to any rules. 
in the acting profession, but what I certainly prefer to do is something that's as different as possible from the thing I just did or the thing I'm best known for. My two major uh, acting roles on television of the last 15 years have been Third Rock from the Sun and Dexter. I was, uh, that's what, I think that's what made Dexter so powerful, was that people had a kind of lingering uh, impression of me as this kind of loopy, ineffectual, hand-wringing, clueless High Commander Dick Solomon. To suddenly be something so different and yet retain a little bit of that affect. I mean, this is what the Trinity Killer pretended to be. A good, kind of simple, uh, good father, good teacher and deacon of the church. You know, someone who was basically he almost cultivated his own innocence as a cover for this diabolical compulsion of his. Uh, I do think that that's what made him so unsettling. People had gotten so very comfortable with me. When you get them in that position, you can scare the shit out of them. <laughs> I shouldn't have used that word. You guys want to pick the... Yes, how about Jason? Do you have a question? Yeah. Sorry. I'm very excited. I was just wondering if it's hard work. Is acting hard work? Yeah. Acting is very hard work, but in a way, the harder the work, the more you love it. I'll tell you, the only thing that's really, really hard is acting in bad material. <laughs> if the material is good, you don't care how hard the physical work is because you're just loving it so much. But that's a very good question, Jason. I think you right here, yes? yes? Hi, John. Big fan of Shrek. Uh, what was your experience like when you voiced Lord Farquaad? Lord Farquaad was, well, you know, it was a kind of disembodied experience because all you do is go in and give them the voice. Uh, I had no sense of what the movie was going to be. I recorded the voice of Lord Farquaad about four years before the movie was released and dropped in once every month, uh, every eight months or so to do some more scenes or they would get another bright idea. But uh, honestly, I thought, what is this, this Shrek? Uh, I, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. I thought I was doing a kind of, you know, kid's video. <laughs> and then uh, I, was, I took my daughter on a uh, college tour and we were in Stanford in Palo Alto, where the animator, animator, animating studio was, they'd always said, come visit if you're in the neighborhood. So while Phoebe took her tour, I went and visited the studio and to see what they were up to a year before it came out, and I saw what Shrek was going to be, and it was a jaw-dropping experience. Great movie. It was, it was clearly going to be a great movie. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> It was so funny because these guys, these sort of animation nerds, they would describe what a joke was. And it would be a very visual joke. He says, you see, the thing is, yeah, you ride up on a, on a big horse and you, you look great. You're in this big arm, shiny armor and you look like a big tall man. Then they lift you out of the armor. It turns out you have short legs, short arms, and you're a short guy. It's, it's going to be hilarious. And I would look at him and say, uh-huh. <laughs> You know, and then you see it a year later, and they were absolutely right. These guys were brilliant. But you know, 
I was only the voice. What did I know? <laughs> yes, do I pick? Who picks? Um, so coming from someone who started in theater, um, how do you feel about, uh, you went to L.A., did the film work, and now are coming back to do theater. How do you feel about bringing stars of film and TV to do theater in New York? Uh, not necessarily good or bad. Oh, I think it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword in many ways. Uh, there's a lot, been a lot, of, lot written about this. It, it, I think it's, it's something we're... It's a reality that we're going to live with for better or for worse simply because of the economics of Broadway theater now. Uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. I'm losing my, my audience, I can tell. Um, I... I you know, I had the interesting experience of doing All My Sons with Katie Holmes. It was a flat-out sellout, you know, and Katie had a lot to do with it, her presence in the cast. She was not an accomplished stage actor. She'd never been on stage before, except for a high school musical. She worked her ass off for eight weeks with, uh, with Simon McBurney. She did a perfectly okay job. Uh, the following year, Scarlett Johansson did exactly the same thing for View from the Bridge. She did a terrific job because she, she, uh, she, she was very commanding on stage. It's, and then you have situations where people are playing roles that they simply shouldn't play. Uh, usually the play fails and uh, people, people pay the price for making foolish decisions in this area. It's, it's all a matter of the good news is that the economy of New York theater is booming. The bad news is it's not quite as adventurous as it used to be on Broadway. Uh, the good news is that there's still the Roundabout Manhattan Theater Club and Lincoln Center who are finding an institutional way of bringing exciting new work into the mix and not, not deferring to the star system on Broadway. The bad news is you don't get paid a lot to work there, you know. Uh, so it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. I, I think, uh, and I think about half the time, I think it's great. You know, the most unlikely things happen, like Reba McIntyre going into Annie Get Your Gun and it turning out to be sensational, you know. So, or or uh, Melanie Griffith going into Chicago and it turning out to be fantastic. You know, it's, not, it's never all one thing or another. Um, being that, you know, as an actor, you're always in a public eye. Yeah. I could imagine that you have to be very mindful of every decision you make, being that you're always being watched. That being said, could I ask, why did you decide to wear all black today? Oh, I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's not all black. This is kind of a, a blue thing. But it also, I also look like the cover of the, uh, uh, of the book. And I think you look dapper. Oh, well, thank you. I... I didn't, uh, that's not why I dressed this way, but it did occur to me once I arrived. Uh, I, I don't know, I, I remember Steve Martin saying, always dress better than your audience. So, I, so, I, so I've been playing, wearing a lot of suits. We have a question right over here. Next question down in the front. Hi, I wanted to say I'm glad that you listened to your son and appeared on Doug Loves Movies. I loved you on that podcast. And I wanted to ask you if either of your parents ever articulated further what it was that clicked with your dad when you read him that story. You know, we didn't, we never talked about it. 
But it was an amazing month because he started out so muted and diminished. And by the end, he had, he, it was like watering a plant or something. He just simply, he had color, he gained weight, he was healthier. He was, both my mom and dad and me, we all dreaded the day when I left. He was so afraid that he would fall back into a depression because we had had such a wonderful time together. It was like leaving your kids at summer camp. And here they were, these octogenarians. We didn't have to talk about it, you know. It, just, it was just the miraculous thing that happened was that I sort of fell in love with my parents in a way that I never had before. Uh, I, I knew them in a different way. I, I, if I have any wisdom to dispense to the rest of the world, it's pay attention to your parents at the end of their lives because uh, it, it just meant so much to me. It meant so much to them. All right, down in front. Um, I teach public high school in Brooklyn, and I'm uh, blessed to be the, the director of the drama program, the after-school drama program at my high school. And uh, a lot of my students come from um, backgrounds where they don't have a lot of access to theater and uh, the, their first sort of uh, point of contact with theater um, comes through our program. And um, they develop this amazing drive and this love for it very quickly. Um, but I was wondering if you were able to give advice to uh, teenagers who are sort of growing up, in, growing up in an environment where they don't have a lot of access to theater but, but have developed a, lot, a, a passion for it. Um, what, what advice would you give them and, and what direction would you tell them to go in to chase it? Well, if they have a genuine passion for theater, there, there are ways to keep doing theater. I, I mean, that, I always urge young kids who are interested at all to just do as much of it as they can for the fun of it. But I also urge them to go to college and get a broad-based education. And while you're doing that, do lots and lots of acting for the fun of it. Uh, constantly give yourself other options. And the most important thing I tell a young creative person is something, I follow that advice myself even at this stage. Make sure you have at least one other thing in your life that you'd rather do than act. Find something that you own, that's some kind of creative outlet that you can do whether somebody hires you to do it or not. That is, write something, or study something, or direct something, or maybe produce something. Find ways to do it. Uh, create a project for yourself, and work like hell to get it done. If you're, an act, if you're a young, unemployed actor, you may never get a chance to do that, but the reason will be somebody's hired you to act. All right, guys, we have time for two more questions. Um, over in the back there. I, I'm sorry, I want to see you as I... Um, first, um, one of the great things about being in New York City in the theater and in long enough is that you get a chance to speak to people that had an effect way back. And um, the last movie I saw before I left rural East Texas to go to Circle in the Square was The World According to Garp. And uh, I think that was probably the first movie where you really made a, an impression. For sure. And um, I was very naive and very green, and that was a long time ago. 
and um, I had seen you and Tim Curry in drag. <laughs> and I was really, really relieved when I found out that two men I thought were really hot and drag were straight because it was very confusing. And um, confusing anyway. for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, like I said, I was from Texas. I was green. I didn't understand that straight guys could do that that well. Anyway, um, Tim Curry kind of feels like that. Uh, I think, from what I understand, that 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 role hurt him a lot because it, you know, kind of got him funneled in a way and he might be right, but it didn't hurt you. And, um, I'm really wondering, was it a, a challenge to decide to take that part? Uh, no, I was dying to, to take that part. Uh, I had read the book Garp a couple of years before and had loved it and loved the character of Roberta Muldoon, but I never even occurred to me it would be a movie. I certainly never dreamed of playing the role. Uh, I didn't think it could be a movie. There seemed to be, there was one scene in the book that to me ruled out a movie, <laughs> you know. But by God, George Roy Hill took it on and uh, Steve Tessich wrote a brilliant screenplay and I was asked to come in to read for Roberta Muldoon. And it was like, oh my God, of course, I'm perfect for that part. I want that part. And he wouldn't hire me because I was too tall. He felt that putting me next to Robin Williams would be too much of a stretch. And he went off looking for somebody better. And he looked for eight months. And they finally came back to me. And we had a screen test together in which they did me up completely as Roberta. And I just got it immediately. I was hired virtually on the spot. Uh, I just thought it, I was perfect for that role. And I loved playing the part. I, I was never afraid of it. Uh, I just knew it was a, it, it was, an, it would be an indelible movie creation the way it was an indelible creation in a novel. No, I, it hurt me. I think it was the making of me. It really was. You know, it, 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 was, it was an extraordinary period in my life. You, I talked about this intermission when I left New York and went out to L.A., and I went out to L.A. because I'd married a UCLA professor not to go be in the movies. GARP came along. I was hired for it, and I shot it here in New York. But by the time it was released, I'd gone out to Los Angeles. It made such an impact that in four, like in two years, from the time GARP was released, I did the Twilight Zone movie, Footloose, Terms of Endearment, and The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, all in close succession. Now, you can't name four movies that are more different than that. And suddenly, I was coin of the realm out there in Hollywood. Uh, so I, I feel that Garp was one of, the, one of the best things that ever happened to me. All right, and, 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 and I'm very, very touched that it, that it reached you out there in East Texas. Well, thank you. Well, that really means a lot to me, I'll tell you. All right, one final question right here. Um, I appreciate what you said about uh, the importance of actors being educated and going to school. And um, I, I feel like lately so many casting directors and especially on-camera acting coaches and people seem to belittle sort of the 
the conservatory programs or a BFA, BFA training in theater, especially if you're trying to get into film and television because you get into certain theatrical habits or, or styles. And um, obviously you've, you're extremely trained and have so much experience in theater but are so terrific on screen as well. Can you say a little bit about how your theater training may have helped you in that sense or how you were able to make the transition? Now, let me get this right. You're saying that in, as you sense it, casting directors now feel that that drama school is almost not the, a good thing? For the, for the TV and film casting directors that I've, I've experienced as of late, yeah. um, people with BFA training, it's, it's sort of slighted and pushed to the side. Well, it's not you know, the most important I, you've thing. Gotta, you've got to completely ignore that. I, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't function as an actor purely on the basis of what you think they want and what you think they need. You think about what you want. What do you want to do? And how do you feel like an expressive person? Uh, and, and to my mind, every actor starting out should do 80% theater. You should figure out who you are as an actor on stage. I, I, I've always considered this the lucky thing that happened to me, that I had acted 10 years. I'd done 12 Broadway shows before I became well-known as a movie and TV actor. I really did know who I was. And yes, it was, it was a learning process to tone things down and play for the camera instead of playing for the audience. But I really do think theater experience is... It, it, it's just a tremendous foundation. And, you just, if, if a casting director advises you different, tell them to go fuck themselves. Because <laughs> uh, uh, I really, I, I'm telling you, theater is where it all starts. Now, I, I can tell you an interesting conversation I had with Leslie Mann out in L.A., who I, wor I played her father in This Is 40. Just loved it, and I think Leslie Mann is fantastic. And Leslie asked me, we became great friends, and she said, you know, you have the perfect career. You can do all these different things, but you're a New York actor. Why are New York actors so snobbish? Why, why do they think they're so superior when they come out to Hollywood? And that was her strong impression. I, and I, I, it surprised me that she said that about New York actors. And I said, is that really your sense of them? I like all of them, and she said, all of them, except you. And I was so surprised at that, uh, and it really did take me aback. Uh, and I, I, we talked about it at length, and I said, you know, I think one of the reasons is New York actors are very insecure in Hollywood. They're uh, at least the ones who are not yet experienced and haven't yet worked in film. They are very different areas. Um, and I think you do have to, this probably connects with what you've learned from casting directors. Uh, you, you, do, you do have to adapt yourself in different ways, and you have to cultivate a de demeanor where you're not off-putting in that sense. It, it is true, you can't lord it over people who have never done the stage by, by thinking you're the bee's knees, and they're not. Um, but that said, I very, very strongly believe that theater is, is the very best way to start. Whatever I do that's special in the movies is because of what I brought from the theater. And I've always felt that what I do on stage 
is more more special and particular than what I do in film. I feel what I do in film, there are a lot of people who can do it, but what I do on stage is all mine. So. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Thank John. You. Great Thank to you, talk guys. To you. Great questions. Thank you all. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight at the Apple Store Upper West Side. And thanks again for John, to John Lithgow for uh, joining us as well. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, don't forget his new book, Drama, An Actor's Education, is available on iBooks for download. Thanks again, folks. And uh, be sure to visit apple.com forward slash Upper West Side and join us again. <laughs>